Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Ladd, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by going to davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the second episode of this podcast, which I aim to air every other Wednesday. In the first episode, I interviewed Alex Spiro, one of the nation's top trial lawyers. For this episode, which I knew would air during the first week of the new Supreme Court term, I decided to interview one of the nation's top appellate advocates, Paul Clement, the 43rd Solicitor General of the United States and now name partner at the Clement & Murphy Boutique. Paul has argued more than 100 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, more cases since the year 2000 than any other lawyer. And they're basically the greatest hits of SCOTUS. He scored two of the biggest wins from the last term, namely New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, the landmark Second Amendment case, and Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, the case of the praying football coach. Paul graduated summa cum laude from Georgetown and magna cum laude from Harvard Law School. He then clerked on the D.C. Circuit for Judge Lawrence Silberman and on the Supreme Court for Justice Antonin Scalia. After spending the early years of his career working in big law and on Capitol Hill, Paul joined the U.S. Solicitor General's office in 2001, then became the Solicitor General in 2004. After stepping down as SG in 2008, he joined the D.C. office of King and Spaulding, but left in 2011 after the firm basically changed its mind about letting him represent the House of Representatives in defending the Defense of Marriage Act. He joined Bancroft, an elite boutique founded by his HLS classmate, Viet Dinh, and when Bancroft got absorbed by Kirkland and Ellis in 2016, Paul became a partner at Kirkland one of the most prestigious and profitable law firms in the world. But earlier this year, after Paul won Bruin, the big Second Amendment case, Kirkland announced it would no longer handle gun rights cases. Unwilling to abandon his clients in the space, Paul and fellow Kirkland partner Aaron Murphy left to launch their own appellate and Supreme Court boutique, Clement and Murphy. The firm has been in business for about three months and already has almost a dozen lawyers. In our conversation, Paul and I talked about a wide range of topics, including his high school and college debate career, his advice for appellate advocates, some additional backstory behind his departure from Kirkland, his concern about big laws increasing unwillingness to take on controversial cases and clients, and that time he may or may not have attended a Green Day concert with Elena Kagan. Without further ado, here's my interview of Paul Clement. So where are you calling in from, Paul? I'm calling in from my home office in Alexandria, Virginia. Oh, okay, great. And are those bobbleheads I see to my left? Those are bobbleheads, yes. That is only (laughs) part of my collection, but those are bobbleheads. Do you have all nine of the current justice? I don't know if there's one for Justice Jackson yet. Yeah, it's just hard. You know, the green bag doesn't help me out with new bobbleheads until the justices have been on the court for a while. But no, this is a very eclectic collection that includes Aaron Rodgers and James Madison. So it's not just the justices. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. So again, I'm really grateful to you for joining me. Maybe we can start at the beginning. You grew up in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, the youngest of four. How would you describe your childhood? 
So it was very Midwestern, very Wisconsin, grew up rooting for the Packers and going to public schools, which were really about the only schools available, you know, in a small town in Wisconsin. And, you know, it was a great place to grow up, a little cold, which is part of the reason I moved, but a great place to grow up. Your dad, I believe, was a CFO and your mom was a stay-at-home parent who did a lot of volunteer work. You're very well informed. You're very well informed. No, that's right. (laughs) Right. And what about your older siblings? So my older siblings include one lawyer, one sort of self-employed kind of house painter, probably for lack of a more accurate description. And my sister was an accountant for a long time as well. Oh, okay. So in your childhood, was there any hint that you would go on to become such a high-powered lawyer and Supreme Court advocate? Probably not. But I think, as you said, I'm the youngest of four children. And my oldest brother went to law school when I think I was nine years old or something like that. So as a result, the possibility of going to law school or becoming a lawyer was pretty prominent from an early age. And then when I got to high school, I got very interested in debate and extemporaneous speaking and things like that. So by that point, the possibility of going to law school started to loom pretty large. So as a former high school and college debate person myself, I did notice that in your background. So it sounds like you were quite active in both high school and on the parliamentary circuit in college. Yeah, more so in high school than college, but I did do parliamentary debate as well. Like, you know, Georgetown wasn't one of those programs that was going to APTA tournaments every weekend or anything like that. But we would go to like three or four tournaments a year in college, which was great. But high school was definitely something where, you know, virtually every week we were either going to a debate in the fall season or extemporaneous speaking tournaments in the spring season. So that was a big deal. So did you do both Lincoln-Douglas debate and extemp or what were your events? So it was really more extemp and policy, though I do Lincoln-Douglas from time to time. But for whatever reason, in Wisconsin when I was growing up, there were regular policy debate tournaments, but not regular Lincoln-Douglas tournaments. Okay, no, fair enough. But it's always striking to me how many top lawyers actually have debate in their background. I think it's a great program. It's a great program. And I had three boys and they all did Lincoln-Douglas debate. And, you know, I'm a big believer in it. And I think it's more important than ever. I think People are starting to forget how to disagree agreeably and are starting to take this view that, you know, there are only one side to some debates. And so I think, you know, having students have to debate position A in the morning and then position not A in the afternoon is just a great discipline for people, whether or not they become lawyers. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Uh, Turning to your work today as an advocate, let me just cut to the chase. What would you say makes you different? There's an elite Supreme Court bar. There are other people who are brilliant and hardworking. What's the sort of Paul Clement special sauce? Well, I don't know that there is one, but I guess one of the things that I've always sort of really focused on is trying to be very conversational in the argument. It's something where you're having a conversation with on the Court of Appeals, typically three in the Supreme Court, typically nine generalist federal judges. So you're not going to persuade them by being overly rhetorical. You're not going to persuade them by being so hyper-technical that a generalist isn't really going to appreciate the point that you're making. And so I've always tried to kind of make the argument in a way that is, you know, zealous and persuasive, hopefully, but it's conversational. 
I've definitely noticed that in listening to your arguments. You have very folksy phrases like game not worth the candle or music to my ears, things that a normal person listening to a Supreme Court argument could actually follow. It's not all just jargon. And I think that's super important. I mean, not because you're expecting the argument to be relayed to people outside the courtroom, but because I think that's the way that the justices relate to arguments as well. I think when you're in the courts of appeals, that's the way appellate judges generally respond to these arguments. And, you know, one thing that certainly doesn't work with the Supreme Court is to go up there and try to say, oh, I'm a specialist and I know more about this area than you do. I mean, I think decades ago, when if you had a super complicated tax case in the Supreme Court, you'd go find the most preeminent tax practitioner to argue the case in the Supreme Court. And I don't think that's any longer the case. And I think that's probably in the client's best interest because the justices will figure out the right answer in the case, but they'll figure out the right answer in the case as generalists. And they also will approach it probably more as a statutory construction issue than a so-called tax issue. And you can really almost apply that to almost any area of the law now where I think that kind of having specialized Supreme Court counsel that's really more focused on how to be persuasive to the nine justices is the right way to approach it as opposed to thinking about things through the lens of just the substantive specialty. That definitely does seem to be the dominant view or the strong trend. I totally agree with you. I'm curious, in terms of tips about appellate advocacy, there are a lot of them out there. For example, don't speechify, listen very carefully to the judge's questions. Is there something in the sort of conventional wisdom of appellate litigators that you disagree with or that you don't follow as a practice? I'm not sure there's anything obvious that I just absolutely disagree with. I think it's more just in maybe degrees of emphasis or the like. I mean, I'm a real big believer that you have to answer the judge's questions. I've heard some lawyers kind of talk about the idea that there are some questions that you really can't answer, so you got to kind of foul them off like the batter in the batter's box. (laughs) And I just don't think that works. I think you really have to continue to refine your case until you can answer every question as effectively as you can. But again, I don't know if there's like one piece of like conventional wisdom that I think is just dead wrong or anything. I really do think that answering the questions to the best of your ability is critical. I also think particularly in the Supreme Court, one of the things that I'm just not sure the conventional wisdom addresses one way or another, but it's always important to recognize that your audience isn't limited to the justice that just asked you the question that you really are answering that justice's question, but you're trying to be persuasive to the whole court. And that's something I think that is an important lesson because, you know, sometimes you can get too tied up in the exchange with one justice who may already agree with you or may already fundamentally disagree with you. And you don't want to do that and lose sight of the fact that the way you win your case is to get five justices, not to super persuade one. Let me ask you this then. You're an amazing appellate advocate, oral advocate, but the cases that go to the Supreme Court, often they're about very controversial issues that the justices may have strong views on. This is a very open-ended question, so you can answer it however you like, but how much of a difference do you think oral argument makes? Well, I tend to think it makes a big difference, but I would almost have to say that. Otherwise, (laughs) I've wasted so many weekends of my life. (laughs) 
would really be discouraging to find out that after all, it made no difference whatsoever. Now, maybe it makes more of a difference in an ERISA case or a bankruptcy case where the justices don't walk in with any particular preconception. Mm. And, and certainly there are some cases where the equation is so overdetermined by what the justices think or that the case is not really that close at the end of the day, that the oral argument's not going to make any difference. But I do think, maybe because I have to think, that in a lot of cases, the oral argument does make a big difference. Maybe not because there's that like one eureka moment where it just all kind of turns around. But I would think in most cases that there are a handful of questions that are bothering the justices or the judges on both sides of the case. And if you can persuasively deal with those handful of questions and show that, you know, the parade of horribles isn't that horrible or whatever it is, and the other side is kind of less comforting to the justices about the handful of things that bother the justices about their side of the case, I think that can often make all the difference. And I think sometimes, and I've noticed this, sometimes advocates might say things that argument that will affect how the opinion gets written, maybe a concession, maybe bringing up something from the record that was overlooked. So I do think that is probably something also in the mix. Sure. And it's also probably much easier to lose a case to oral argument than it is. <laughs> but I do think sometimes you're exactly right. Really, even if you don't influence the ultimate outcome in the case, the oral advocate can have a huge impact on how the opinion is written or can make, as you say, a concession that makes a case that could be really difficult into a somewhat easier case for the court. And I think the court would you know, welcome that and that directly impacts how the opinion is written. So in terms of cases that probably were going to go the way they were going to go, obviously, I think of the first Affordable Care Act case, which you argued, and you've had some amazing wins and you've also had some prominent losses. Over the course of your career, and you've argued by now, I guess, more than 100 cases before the Supreme Court, is there a particular win that you are most proud of? You know, I'm not even sure I could identify one that I'm like most proud of. I mean, honestly, for Supreme Court arguments, you spend so much time with the case that by the end of it, you know, Supreme Court arguments are a little like children. You sort of love them all. <laughs> you feel very good about all the wins. The losses still stick in your craw, you know, even years later. So it's hard to kind of pick sort of just one. But there are certainly cases where you feel like, wow, the advocacy really may have made a difference. You know, I argued a case a couple of years ago about sort of the interaction between eminent domain law and state sovereignty, you know, so-called 11th Amendment immunity and the rest. And my clients prevailed in that case by a 5-4 majority that was a very unusual 5-4 majority. And I wouldn't say like, oh, well, that's, you know, the win that I'm most proud of. But I mean, I love the fact that we could put together a coalition of the court that was, you know, not anybody's usual five to four. And we could appeal to different justices with different arguments. That was also one where I think one of the arguments I was able to make, it's like an analogy to Texas against the United States, a wonderful old late 19th century chestnut that was not in the briefs, but I thought it was a very helpful analogy that I worked into the oral argument and then it ended up featuring the court's opinion. So things like that, you know, you take away from and you're like, yeah, I'm happy about that. Other cases, maybe you appreciate for different reasons. I've always felt very positive about what the 
office of the Solicitor General and, you know, my own role in it was able to do for the court in the McConnell against FEC case, you know, the constitutionality of the bipartisan campaign reform act or McCain-Feingold. You know, that was a case where I think a lot of Republicans were rooting against the Bush Justice Department. And so the case is kind of memorable because of that. But Mm. what really sticks out in my mind is the fact that this was one of these cases where Congress created a mechanism for lots of people to challenge the statute right away in district court. And so there were like 11 different challenges brought to the constitutionality of the law. There was a three-judge district court convened. They wrote something like a 1,500-page opinion. (laughs) Actually, three judges wrote four opinions. So the whole thing was kind of an unwieldy mess. And there was a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. And what we were able to do in the SG's office is file a single brief. It was the longest brief I've ever like had my name on, but it was still, you know, only 135 pages. And it was just one brief responding to like 11 different briefs on the other side. And I always felt like we were able to make that case manageable for the Supreme Court, which was... I think really consistent with the traditions of the office and something that I've always felt like, you know, that's a case where we made a difference putting aside the outcome, which worked out all right for the office in the main, but we also made a difference in just taking a very unwieldy case and making it manageable for the court. And the other thing I would note about that case is in that case, you were arguing for a side that maybe some conservatives or Republicans might not like. I think a lot of times people view you as a Supreme Court advocate for conservative causes, but you've represented criminal defendants, you've represented immigrants, and you tried to defend this campaign finance law, and many conservatives are very averse to campaign finance regulation. Yeah, and that's something that goes back to working in the Solicitor General's office. I think, obviously, there are a couple of you know prominent examples every couple of years, but for the most part, the Solicitor General's office and the Justice Department more generally really pride themselves on defending the constitutionality of statutes, whether or not the party in power at the time kind of loves the statute or hates the statute. And that's something that I think is very much kind of bred into you in the SG's office. And you feel very strongly that it's important in a case like the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act or, you know, even other cases involving, you know, most conservatives kind of like the sort of 11th Amendment immunity for states. But In the SG's office, you're defending the prerogative of the federal government and Congress to impose damages liability on the state. So in a bunch of those cases, you're kind of on the anti-federalist side of things. But that's all consistent with the kind of best traditions of the office. And then when you leave the SG's office, you know, I think myself and a lot of people, you kind of take that with you. So, yeah, maybe your opportunities come more on sort of, you know, cases that people identify as conservative or for other people, liberal, but I've always really enjoyed being able to take cases that don't necessarily fit that pattern. You know, you've mentioned a bunch of them, but, you know, if you look at even like sub-issues, you know, I've had cases where I was aligned with the Native American tribes and represented Native American tribes, and I've had cases where I'm on the other side. And I just feel in a sense, you're a better advocate if you're willing and able to sort of take cases with differing perspectives. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was at Bancroft, that smaller firm, I was able to do some plaintiff side work that you can't really do in big law. 
And I've always thought that doing some of that plaintiff side work made me a much better defense side lawyer when I got the chance to do it on the other side. Sort of see things differently, you get a more holistic approach to the law and you kind of understand what makes the other side tick. Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. So you mentioned Bancroft, of course, which is the boutique that you were at after you departed from King and Spaulding. And now, of course, as has been covered extensively, you and Aaron Murphy, about almost three months to the day, I think, left Kirkland and Ellis to launch Clement Murphy. So tell me, what is your vision for the new firm? I note that you already are up to almost a dozen lawyers and you've only been around for three months. How big do you want the firm to get? Are you going to be, expand beyond appellate work? What is your vision for the firm? I think the vision in the short term is to really be an appellate boutique and to be, you know, sort of Bancroft 2.0 with apologies to Viet, who <laughs> elsewhere occupied at the moment. But, you know, I don't think, at least right now, I sort of envision the firm getting particularly large or getting involved in issues that are far removed from appellate practice. There may be some practices that are, you know, very closely allied that if the right lawyer wanted to join us, certainly be open to that. And I've always thought like what we did both at Bancroft and hope to do at Clement Murphy is to apply our appellate skill set. But that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes appear in district court or sometimes do a white paper to make the case that a proposed piece of legislation is unconstitutional or something like that. I think it's not so much that your work is defined exclusively by being in one set of courts versus the other. It's a sort of a skill set. I mean, are you more of an appellate generalist or are you more of a sort of, you know, fact developing great trial lawyer? Lots of great trial lawyers in the world. We don't really aspire to duplicate what they do, but I do think we bring sort of a different set of skills. And we're up to about a dozen lawyers now, but it's in some respects a little misleading because we haven't actually had anybody join us who wasn't part of our appellate practice at mm. Kirkland. Okay. So it's sort of, at this point, it's mostly about kind of reassembling the band okay. in a new place. And it's been exciting. You know, I think Aaron and I are both really excited about some of the younger lawyers that have kind of been willing to join us. Aaron and I have both left big law once before. So we know that there is life after <laughs> big law. In some respects, even better life you know, more enjoyable in some respects on a day-to-day basis. So it's kind of easier for us, but for some of the younger lawyers who, you know, are closer to law school and clerkships, I think leaving big law is probably seems like a more daunting step. And so we've been really encouraged that they've been willing to sort of take the leap and join us. So this next question is maybe a compound question, but are you concerned about what seems to be the increasing trend of large law firms shying away from controversial clients or causes? And if so, are boutiques really the wave of the future when it comes to working on these really interesting, cutting-edge, but controversial cases? So it is a compound question. I think <laughs> my answers are absolutely and probably. Okay. <laughs> um, so on the absolutely part, yeah, I'm you know terribly concerned that it seems like it's getting more and more the case that big law firms are only willing to tackle a subset of the controversial issues or on more and more issues are only willing to really weigh in on one side of the V. And I think that's a really kind of troubling trend. I mean, obviously it impacted me and Erin personally recently. You know, I won't speak for her, but, you know, I wasn't particularly looking to leave Kirkland and Ellis this summer. 
but some things are more important than what law firm you're at, including your commitment to ongoing representations of existing clients. So in the end, it was an easy choice to leave, but it wasn't like I was, you know, planning on doing that. It was, you know, sort of, you know, kind of boutique law was kind of thrust upon me as Mm -hmm. opposed to something that I affirmatively chose. And I think that's a really problematic trend. I think it's bad for the courts. I think it's bad for the law. You know, big law firms can provide resources on pro bono issues. Big law firms have the resources to do certain kind of cases better than almost anybody else. And so if kind of big law is only willing to do a subset of cases or only really be on one side of important legal issues, I think that, you know, the whole system and the courts, frankly, are going to ultimately suffer as a result. I mean, I'm a huge believer in the adversarial system, and the adversarial system is premised on the idea that both sides are supposed to be exceptionally well represented, even though in the end, only one side is right. Mm -hmm. And you kind of lose that if kind of big law is going to pick one side of issues before the litigation even starts. So I think it's absolutely a huge problem. I think it's getting much worse, and I really hope that it will be reversed. If not, and this gets to the probably, then I do think boutiques are going to be the wave of the future. But as I was kind of alluding to, you know, boutiques are pretty good at certain things. I like to think that we did appellate litigation as, you know, well at Bancroft as you could do at a big firm. And we hope to do the same at Clement Murphy. But I think it's harder for the boutique law firms to do you know, some of the really intensive trial work that requires mm-hmm. huge commitments of kind of capital and labor to kind of get it right. I think it's much easier for big law to do that. I think for boutiques, the economics make it a little harder to do pro bono that involves large commitments of kind of time and resource. Sure, you can do an amicus brief pro bono or even an appeal pro bono. But again, some of the more sort of time and labor intensive stuff, just the economics of the boutique make it pretty hard to do that. So I don't think that, although boutiques may be the wave of the future, they're not a kind of perfect substitute. And that's why I do think it's really lamentable that there seems to be this trend that, you know, more and more of the controversial cases are off limits at big law firms. Yeah, I know. I totally agree with you. And I know other lawyers feel the same way in terms of just the resources that large firms can bring to the table. I am curious, just, and this is a little in the weeds, but I would refer people to your excellent Wall Street Journal op-ed that you and Aaron co-authored when you left Kirkland, if they're looking for another articulation of the principles you just described. Did you have a sense before Bruin came down that maybe that was going to happen, though? Because everything came together so quickly and beautifully, I have to say. Your firm website, the op-ed, everything just fell into place. Did you have a hint that maybe Kirkland was going to decide not to take Second Amendment clients, including pulling the rug out from under existing clients? Yeah, look, that all didn't happen in 24 hours or, (laughs) you know, in one day. And, you know, it was a process that, you know, unfolded over a couple of weeks. So it wasn't like there wasn't some warning of that. But I have to say, I really, I kept thinking that, you know, of course, you know, sort of people would in my view, come to their senses. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel pretty strongly that the firm made a mistake. And I guess I felt that so strongly that maybe I was blind to the fact that they really were going to go through with it. Because it just seemed Mm -hmm. to me, 
you know, that this was something that was discussed when, you know, this client in particular was specifically discussed when I came to Kirkland and Ellis, you know, five years earlier from Bancroft. It's not like, you know, the NRA only became controversial in the last, you know, <laughs> three months or something. And we were representing, you know, clients in the Second Amendment space and the NRA for over five years at Kirkland. And, you know, Kirkland cast a lot of checks from the NRA during that time period. So it really did strike me that incorrectly, as it turns out, that, you know, hopefully the firm would sort of realize that kind of, you know, winning a Supreme Court case is an odd juncture <laughs> to decide that you're going to exit a particular area of the law. But in the end, that that's that's the judgment that the firm made. So you mentioned, of course, Bruin, and you also won another landmark Second Amendment case, McDonald v. Chicago. I'm curious, you've just talked about the need for lawyers to represent sides that maybe they don't necessarily agree with or causes that they aren't necessarily personally aligned with. But do you happen to be a hunter? I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm actually not. I mean, I very recently purchased my first firearms, okay, which were a couple of shotguns. But I'm not somebody who comes from like a hunting background. It's funny, the year I clerked, for Justice Scalia was the year he started hunting because he didn't, he, huh. he did not sort of, I mean, grew up in, you know, New York. He, he did not yeah. grow up sort of, you know, hunting elk on the Great Plains. Uh, but it was something he came to kind of late in life. And so, look, I feel very privileged to have gotten to be involved in some of these Second Amendment disputes because as a lawyer, it is such a fascinating area of the law. I mean, if you can strip out your views about sort of, you know, guns and firearms regulation and all that for a second, and just think about it as a legal issue, the idea that there's this provision in the Bill of Rights that was kind of largely unexplored by the Supreme Court for decades and decades, and then the court takes a fresh look at it and then has to decide, okay, we recognize there's an individual right here. Are we going to kind of apply like all this baggage from the First Amendment or other areas of the law where we had different levels of scrutiny and tests upon tests? Are we going to come up with a very different approach because we can, because it's a fresh area of the law? The fact that kind of with the Second Amendment, you really see this both in Justice Scalia and Justice Stevens' opinion in Heller, you know, everybody kind of has to be an originalist mm -hmm. because there's no good choice, right? I mean, you know, in the Fourth Amendment or the First Amendment, you don't have to be an originalist if you don't want to because you have like 10 decades of court cases to debate about, but you don't have that in the Second Amendment. So it's such a rich and fascinating area of the law. I feel very privileged to have gotten to litigate a number of those cases, but that's really kind of how I come at the area of the law as opposed to somebody who comes at the area of the law with very strong views because... I've been, you know, carrying a firearm since I was, you know, a wee lad or something. <laughs> really, the only area of the law that I come at with, you know, that kind of intense passion is, you know, I, I feel very privileged to have also gotten to represent the NFL. And that's just entirely because I'm a football fan. <laughs> well, that was actually going to lead me to my next question in terms of what does Paul Clement do when he's not working on Supreme Court cases? And one person I talked to in preparation for this interview said it's basically two things, football and family. And on the football score, the Green Bay Packers, I believe. So is that accurate? Well, there are things beyond football and family, but that's an excellent place to start. And, you know, the Packers are my, you know, sort of NFL team of choice. And that really goes back to growing up in Wisconsin. I mean, you know, other places, 
like their football teams, but in Wisconsin, the Packers are kind of the civic religion of the whole state, or at least the parts that don't border on Minnesota. There's some odd sort of Vikings fans in you know, places like Eau Claire. But I, I grew up in Milwaukee suburbs. You know, it's wall-to-wall Packer fans. And I do love the team and watching the team. And obviously, family is incredibly important. You know, my wife, Alexander, and I have, you know, three boys. And I've spent a lot of weekends getting ready for Supreme Court arguments. But I think that's probably made me even more conscious that, you know, on the weekends, I'm not preparing for Supreme Court arguments. It's really important to spend time with family and, you know, your kids. You know, the only people who grow up faster than your kids are other people's kids. (laughs) You know, the time, you know, it's being a parent is really hard work, as you know. And when you're doing it, it seems, you know, very tiring and tasking, but it goes remarkably fast. And so you really do have to sort of treasure that time and those opportunities. And, you know, no matter how excited you are about the next case you're arguing, you can't lose that sense of perspective. I totally agree. Totally agree. Are any of your sons going to become lawyers, perhaps, or are lawyers? Time will tell. Time will tell. There's at least one that's thinking pretty hard about applying for law school in a year or two. So we'll see. Um, and, you know, I suppose I'm happy about that, you know, less because I just want them to do whatever they want. But I do think the fact that at least, you know, one of them is thinking about sort of becoming a lawyer is probably the reflection of, you know, they saw what I did for a living and, you know, and thought that that might not be a bad way to spend their time as well professionally. So I take some pride in that. So before I go to my final four questions, which are standard for all guests, one last question about things that one does outside of work. I read in a profile that you once went to a Green Day concert with Elena Kagan. Is that true? Well, we certainly went to, there was a Green Day concert and I had dinner with Elena beforehand. I can't speak for whether she went to the concert or not. I know Ah. I did, (laughs) but I definitely broke bread with Elena beforehand. And I'd certainly go to a Green Day concert with her again. She's a great justice, but she's also a friend. And my taste in music has always, you know, not been squarely within the, uh, the mainstream, let's just say. You know, I was a big Nirvana fan back in the day have spent a lot of time at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., you know, even back when it was on F Street. So, you know, that's something I've always really enjoyed. Oh, some music, too, is another interest. I think we actually probably have similar tastes in music. (laughs) So in terms of my final questions, and they're standardized, the first is, what do you like the least about the law? So I think it's probably two things. One is just conflicts. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, legal ethics are important and you can't represent sort of, you know, two sides in the same case and all of that. But, you know, I do think particularly business conflicts where, you know, it's not a real conflict. I mean, they're the bane of everybody's existence. I think at big law, you know, I've done small law, I've done big law. And on a day-to-day level, the best part about small law is the smaller conflict footprint and just having to spend less time dealing with them. So I really hate that. And then the thing I, we already talked about this, but the thing I'm increasingly hating is this idea that wholly apart from conflicts, you know, some law firms are just not willing to kind of, you know, channel the tradition that I think goes back to John Adams and probably long before that it's really important to represent sort of unpopular causes and not worry so much about how that is going to affect the bottom line. Because I think part of what being a lawyer entails is explaining to clients and non-lawyers that, you know, you don't get to veto who else I'm representing. 
And it's really important. I mean, you know, nobody would go to their doctor and say, I really don't like the fact that you're treating this other person for their cancer because they're a scumbag and I hate them. And I mean, you know, I really think lawyers ought to have the same approach, which is like, you know, one client doesn't get to dictate which other clients you represent because at the end of the day, like you don't need a litigator unless you're unpopular with somebody. And we really ought to kind of just get back to the idea that what lawyers in general and litigators in particular do is represent people who are unpopular and we don't let people tell us that we can't do that or shouldn't do that. Very well said. Question number two, what would you be if you were not a lawyer? So almost certainly an economist. I mean, you know, maybe a pretty lousy one, but I came pretty close. I did a year in England of graduate study in economics after undergrad and before law school. And I deferred law school for a year to do that. And I kind of had to make a decision whether I was going to get a PhD in economics or go to law school. And it was a pretty close thing in my mind as to which way I would go. And I went to law school instead of doing an econ program, in part because I didn't really have a mentor when I had to make that decision that really excited me about doing economics. And then right after I made the decision, a professor at Cambridge who had been on sabbatical the first term came and, you know, got me really excited about some econ stuff. And I wonder if, you know, he hadn't been on sabbatical in the fall term of the year I was there, whether I might not be an economist today. So I think that's definitely the answer. Interesting. Someone was telling me that in terms of future jobs for you, they could see you as NFL commissioner or president of Georgetown. Would either of those jobs interest you if they became available? Well, those would be pretty cool jobs, I have to say. I mean, I do love both the NFL and my alma mater. I thought you were going to say sommelier, which is, you know, another sort of second career I've toyed with from time to time. <laughs> well, actually, I have heard there might be a third F, family football and fine wine, but I don't really know wine, so I shelf that one. <laughs> so question number three, how much sleep do you get a night? As much as possible. And I would say, you know, close to eight hours. I mean, I'm not... Wow. Is like, you know, people who functions well on little sleep or, you know, I mean, I like sleeping. So yeah, I'm about eight hours. If I can get it, I can usually get it kind of guy. I'm very glad to hear that because I was afraid as I interview all these prominent lawyers that everyone's going to tell me they sleep four or five hours a night. So I'm glad to hear that you've had the career and success you've had and you still get a good eight hours of sleep. So my final question is, any words of wisdom for listeners out there who look at your life and your career and want to basically be Paul Clement? The only thing I would say is that you got to really search out opportunities to be able to practice law the way you want to. And what I think that means for anybody that wants to be an appellate lawyer is you really have to seek out opportunities to get arguments if that means going into the government or if that means taking more pro bono cases or whatever it takes, I just think, you know, you really have to search out opportunities that will get you in court and allow you to sort of show yourself. I've always thought like the best business development that any lawyer can do is to do cases and do them well. I mean, you know, it's not going out and talking about other people's cases that gets you the next case. It's actually going into court and being successful 
and representing your clients well. So you just have to figure out ways to get those opportunities. I think that's so, so true. My first guest, Alex Spiro, who's a trial lawyer, when he was in the Manhattan DA's office, he would go around basically asking people if they had trials that they wanted to kind of slough off or orphaned cases because somebody had left the office. And, you know, I think having that hustle to get appeals or trials is really important. No, absolutely. Because, you know, when you get those opportunities in the government, they stick with you. I mean, you know, you can, if you've had a bunch of trials in the district attorney's office, or you've had a bunch of appellate arguments in, you know, let's say a state solicitor's general office or whatever it is, like those arguments come with you. And then if you go into practice or hang out your own shingle and the clients ask you, you how many times have you done this before? You can give them a great answer. And clients don't care whether the previous times you've done the argument you were doing for the government or something else. When they ask you how many times you've done this before, they're not looking for zero as an answer. So you really need to do something that gets you those early opportunities. For me, I mean, obviously it was government, but even before then, you know, my very first DC circuit argument or appellate argument anywhere was a DC circuit argument pro bono. Hmm. And then my second argument was a paid argument for a client in an eighth circuit appeal. And they asked me if I'd ever done an appellate argument before. And I could proudly say yes. And they didn't care. (laughs) So whether it's pro bono or government, you just need to get those opportunities. Yep, exactly. Get those at-bats. Well, thank you so much, Paul. This was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think my readers, my listeners will as well. And I'm just so grateful for your time. All right. Now, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Say hello to Zach for me. Will do. I will send your best. Thanks again. Thanks again to Paul for joining me. Despite his brilliance, he is down-to-earth and easy to talk to, and interviewing him was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed participating in it. As always, thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt, because David Latt was already taken on that platform. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to Original Jurisdiction. Since this podcast is new, please help spread the word by telling your friends about it. And if you might be interested in sponsorship opportunities for either the podcast or the newsletter, please reach out to me. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already, over at davidlatt.substack.com. The podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content, but it is made possible by your paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast will appear two weeks from now, on Wednesday, October 19. And it's going to be a little different from the first two. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.